to me. It is me. Oh. Poor sound guys. Everybody think it's their fault. It's not. It's this guy's fault. Good morning. Today, we are in Mark chapter 14. So, if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. We're in Mark chapter 14. We're going to cover some of the same ground that Matt covered last week. He took the whole big part of the chapter. I'm going to focus in on one particular portion of it, starting in verse 22. Mark 14, verse Did I say 42? 22, excuse me. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been going through the book of Mark, if you've been with us for any amount of time at all. And what we've been saying is that one of Jesus' primary concerns in this gospel is to redefine for us that ancient concept of the good life for his followers. And we need this constant reminder because rival conceptions of the good life and ultimate happiness and human flourishing, they, they rush at us every morning like a pack of hungry animals. And unless we are cognizant of it, unless we constantly remind ourselves about the good life of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring us, then we will submit ourselves easily to the fury and the persistence of those animals. So today, we come to the Lord's Supper. This is the center of the good life of the kingdom of God. Now, I remember years ago, I was hiking in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and it was with a few other people, but we, we came around the bend of a trail on the ridge of a mountain. You couldn't see around it, but once we could see, right in the middle of the trail was a black bear about 20 yards in front of us, about as tall on all fours as I was on all twos. And as you can imagine, my breath caught in my throat, my heart began to beat fast, and I stood absolutely still. Now, I, I could tell that the, the bear hadn't seen me yet or anybody who was with me, but I was still entirely fearful, gripped with fear. And I knew the worst thing that I could do is run because I knew I couldn't outrun a bear. And besides, it could be that my running would alert it to my presence. So I stood there, not moving, eyes wide, heart beating fast, body full of adrenaline, and I stood there for 15 minutes, what seemed like hours, while the bear just sort of pawed around on the trail. But within those 15 minutes, over the course of it, there was a point at which my fear left me. I figured bears aren't stupid. It probably knows that I'm there, And if he hadn't attacked me yet, he probably wasn't likely to. And with those rationalizations in my mind, what I noticed is that my fear began to change into awe. He he simply allowed me to be in his presence and enjoy what 
what seems to me like a rare glimpse into the life of such a majestic creature. And after those 15 minutes, the bear lost interest and padded up the mountain and out of my life. And the moment was over. And the Lord's Supper, to me, is something like that moment. We walk along in our daily lives, assuming that we know what's around every bend, more of the same that came before us. But we show up here every Sunday. And Christ has set his table before us. And if we're thinking about it right, it ought to stop us in our tracks. Our eyes ought to grow wide. Our hearts ought to, st- ought to start beating fast because we've stumbled into the holiest of meals and sometimes unawares. And Lord willing, when we understand what it means, a great awe will begin to grow in us. And that's my job this morning, to help us remember what this meal means, the the centerpiece of our worship week in and week out. And I'm going to do that under three headings. Number one, symbols and metaphors. Number two, the meal and its meaning. And number three, application. Symbols and metaphors, the meal and its meaning, and application. So let's start with number one, symbols and metaphor. So in order to really get into this topic, we need to get, we need to do some work before we even get to the text. So that work happens to be on the topic of symbol and metaphor. Now, I know there's English teachers in this room and they're going to rise up in indignation at my casual equalizing of these two terms. Like, I know that symbol and metaphor are not the same thing. It's true, but they're related, you know, related enough for us common folk to basically treat them the same. So please forgive me, but as a sop to the English teachers, uh, let's start with Shakespeare. From Romeo and Juliet. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Ah, yes. Juliet is the sun. Now, of course, Shakespeare is not being literal here, right? He does not mean to tell us that Juliet is like a giant flaming ball of incandescent gas. That's not what he means, it's a metaphor. And here's the thing, without ever being told all the things that Romeo means by calling Juliet the sun, we understand the comparison. And that that is why we have English teachers, to to make us think about what those comparisons mean. But even without those rationalizations, we understand what he means when he compares her to the sun. We understand that Romeo means that in some manner, Juliet shines, right? That She rises upon him with all the life-giving energy and delight as the sun does. So my point is that we understand metaphor without having to explain the connections propositionally. We just know what he means, not first in our minds, but in our guts, right? You, you you, You get it. We can turn around and explain what we just perceived in our guts, but the point is that metaphor works on our guts first. Let me try to explain. 
Uh, I once read a story about a woman who had a brain injury and lost her ability to make new memories. And so she had been going to the doctor after her accident, and the doctor confirmed it. She could not remember a single thing after her accident. And every week she showed up at the doctor's office for her appointment and went through the same routine. She introduced herself as if she had never met the man before, because in her mind she hadn't. And after months of this kind of repetition, the doctor got an idea. One morning when she arrived, he put a little pin in his hand um, so that when they shook hands, it would pierce her skin. And so when she shook, I don't know if that's malpractice, I don't know what, the, but, it, <laughs> but, that's, but he did it. Um, and and when, he sh when she shook his hand, the pin stuck her and she jerked away. Now, the next week, of course, because she couldn't form any new memories, she had forgotten all about this episode. Um, and when she arrived at the doctor's office then, she introduced herself as she did at every appointment, and the doctor stuck out his hand to greet her, and she went for it, but then hesitated. She wouldn't shake her hand. She wouldn't shake his hand. And, and when he asked why, she couldn't quite explain why she wouldn't shake his hand. The doctor then concluded that the pinprick did in fact make a new memory, but not a conscious one, you see. We can turn around and explain those things, but she couldn't explain rationally why she couldn't shake his hand, except that her guts told her not to. So metaphors slip a pin into our everyday lives. We don't think about them consciously, but they work on us deeply. And symbols are powerful in the exact same way. I think I've used the illustration before, but indulge me. Um, imagine if Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea, uh, who, for all we can tell, does not think highly of Americans, um, imagine that he hosts a state dinner that is televised for all the world to see, and as the great silver platter comes out and is unveiled, there's a cooked bird there for everyone to eat. And when someone asks, oh, what kind of bird are we dining on tonight? He says, baked bald eagle. Now, in the realm of rational thought, just in the thinky-thinky parts, there's no problem there, right? People eat birds every day. Technically, a bald eagle is just another bird. Why shouldn't he eat it with his guests? But we know that the bald eagle for Americans is more than just another bird. It's a symbol that represents what we most value in our culture. It's a symbol of independence. It's a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of courage and ruggedness and on and on. But we don't have to wait for that explanation for the symbol to offend us. Right? That does its work first before we could ever explain why that's offensive. Because that symbol is attached to our collective American guts. And what's more, that symbolic action is probably more offensive than if he would have just used words to denounce America. Yes? Okay. So hopefully we're all agreed that metaphor and symbol are both pervasive and powerful at a pre-rational level, but we do need to go one step further. You see, we, we start by using metaphors 
And we end with the metaphors using us. Let me, let me try to explain. When we say that time is money, it's a metaphor. It's a very American metaphor. We all know what we mean by that without having to explain it, right? But I will explain it. Uh, when we say that time is money, what we mean is that time is blocks of commodities that we can either spend or save or whatever, and, and we must use them wisely. We're not going to devote our time to someone or something that does not profit us in some way. When we could be working on something that produces income and somebody stops in our office just to chat for a little while and won't leave, maybe you've had this experience, we feel the press of that metaphor, time is money. Maybe you even say that to get them out of your office. Like, sorry, I mean, I'd love to keep talking, but I got to keep working on this. I got a deadline. After all, time is money, and everybody knows what that means. So that's our metaphor. We start by using the metaphor, and here's how the metaphor begins to use us. What many of us don't realize is that the metaphor of money has fundamentally altered our cognitive structures for how we think about time. So that we speak about all of our time in terms of money. Not even speak about it, but think about it in terms of money. We, we, we talk about saving time by going this way instead of that way. We talk about spending our time in a certain way. That traffic cost me an hour. I need to budget my time better. Is that endeavor worth your time? I need to use this hour profitably. So the, the metaphor that controls our thinking about money, excuse me, about time, is money. And it's, it's, it's become so pervasive that it's actually shifted the way we think about the entire thing. Without us even understanding, without us knowing it, we just do it. So we started by saying time is money, and that metaphor has fundamentally shifted, altered the way we think about time. It's almost always in terms of money. You might not even be able to conceive of time in any other way. I might be pointing at something that you're like, oh, that's obvious, but I never thought about it before. Time is a commodity for us. We must allocate it wisely. But literally, time is not a commodity. You can't spend and save time. Time is time, and that's all. What if our controlling metaphor for time was something different, like, say, time is a dance? In that way, somebody comes into our office, we might see them not as a waste of resources, but as a potential dance partner that we can turn on the dance floor with for just a little bit. Now, I, and, and I'm not... I'm not making any judgments on our controlling metaphors for time. It, it's, it, there, there are good things about it, there are bad things about it, and I'm not suggesting that we change it. My only concern is that we notice what, in our day-to-day -day speech and our day-to-day -day thinking, tends to go unnoticed. And the thing is, unless you're in the habit of noticing such things, you probably never noticed all these metaphors in your speech. That's because we started by using the metaphor, and now the metaphor uses us. 
Okay. Now that we understand the power and pervasiveness of metaphor and symbol, I think we're ready to move on to our text for this morning. So let's move on to number two, the meal and its meaning. And since this text is short, I'd like to read it again in its entirety. Now that you have all of this structural framework in place, listen to Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, I hope you heard it as I was reading through it. Jesus' speech here is overflowing with metaphor and symbol. He takes bread and said, this is my body. He takes a cup and he says, this is my blood. These, say, these statements sound just like the metaphors that we've just been considering, right? Time is money. Juliet is the sun. These sayings of Jesus about this meal are clearly metaphors, which is why Protestants, just as a parenthetical note, Protestants cannot affirm the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which teaches that when you come to the table and you ingest these elements, the bread physically turns into the flesh of Christ, the, in our case, juice or wine, physically turns into the blood of Christ in your body. And a minor reason that I spent so much time trying to establish how metaphors work is so that when we got to this text, you would immediately recognize Christ's metaphor of body and blood. After all, the first communion at this meal that we're looking at in Mark chapter 14, it it had to be a metaphor because it couldn't have been the literal blood and body of Christ because he was sitting right there. He was, he was, he was there. Okay, so that's, uh, okay. It's just bread and wine. It's just bread and wine. Now, by saying all of this, it might seem like I'm taking a lower view of the meal. Seems like, it would, seems like it would be a higher view to say, oh no, something, something magnificent happens here. It, it physically transforms into these elements. But I don't see, I don't see my interpretation of it this, that, that particular way. Unfortunately, ever since the 1920s in that sensational Scopes monkey trial, There's been a dividing line in America between people who profess to take the Bible literally and those who take it symbolically or metaphorically. And the literalists hold the high ground in their own minds, and it's the symbolists who are the defectors. But that can't be the real way of things. I mean, I've been asked that question on a few occasions in my life. Do you take the Bible literally? Well it's, well, it's more like, um, there's more scorn to it. Like, um, you don't take the Bible literally, do you? Of course, the expected answer is no. To which my response is always, which part of the Bible are you talking about? The literal parts or the metaphorical parts? <laughs> I take the literal parts literally. I take the symbolic parts symbolically. It's not an abandonment of faith to take the Bible metaphorically where it clearly speaks in metaphor. 
I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of anyone who suggests that when David in the Psalms says that God gathers his people under his wings as a chicken gathers her brood, that, uh, as a hen gathers her brood. I never met anyone who thinks that that's really affirming that God is a cosmic chicken. It's not, it's clearly a metaphor. And we interpret it metaphorically. And when we learn to do that, we find that the symbol or the, listen, we find that the symbol or the metaphor is actually far richer in meaning than any literal rendering could possibly be. We're creatures who crave signs and symbols and metaphor. And by the way, we're the only creatures capable of this kind of thinking. If I drop a piece of food on the floor at dinner, I don't want to bother myself to bend over and pick it up, call my dog in the room, and when she comes, she's looking up at me eagerly, and when I point at the floor, do you know what she does? She sniffs my finger. <laughs> For her, it's just a finger. Oh, thanks. This is, thank you. This is nice. Dogs can't interpret signs. This is, a, this is a sign pointing beyond itself to the floor, but she can't see it. She can't interpret it. It's just a finger. But we have been made in the image of God. We've been made to understand these great symbolic and metaphorical mysteries. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood of the covenant. The bread and the wine are signs. They're symbols they're visual metaphors that point to a whole world of meaning beyond themselves. So let's finally get to what those meanings are. First, let's talk about the bread. When Christ gave us bread to eat, he said it was a symbol of his body, broken for us. Now what does this mean? Well, it means that this bread is a symbol of the life in Christ. Do you remember what Jesus taught in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 57 and 58? He says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so, listen, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, will live forever. When we ingest this bread, Christ tells us that we are ingesting everlasting life. We are in actuality feeding upon Christ himself, and I am deep in mystery here. Because if an outsider comes in and sees us doing this and saw our little ritual that we do each and every week, he would only see people putting a small square of bread into their mouths and chewing and swallowing and digesting. But that's only a, that, that's, that interpretation is the equivalent of a dog sniffing at a finger. It's, it's just bread. It's just chewing. It's just swallowing. Christ tells us on his own authority that as we do this very normal, biological, necessary act of eating, somehow, don't ask me how, somehow 
Our spirits are nourished right along with it. And to tease out the metaphor even further, when the bread enters our bodies, all sorts of processes spring into action which metabolize the discrete parts of that bread into nutrition for the places in our body which most need it. And the same thing happens when we feed upon Christ by faith. Our hearts metabolize the grace that he gives us and sends the nutrients to the places that most need it. The great valleys of our hearts that have grown dark with affliction. When we eat the bread of Christ, his life rises upon it like the sun. The jangling chains of anxiety and worry. When we eat the bread, Christ's life breaks all that binds us. So that's the bread. Second, the wine, or in our case, juice. When Christ gave us the cup to drink, he taught us that it was a symbol of the blood of the covenant. So when we take this cup, what does it point to? It points to the atoning blood shed by Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And whoever believes in that, their forgiveness is secured. They are made members of a new covenant. Now, that might be new language to you, so let me explain. I don't know if you are here a few years ago, but I preached a sermon on the two different kinds of covenants that you found in the ancient world. And in that sermon, I argued that God's primary way of relating to people is through a covenant, which, when being defined, is just a relationship defined by oaths, O-A-T-H-S, oaths. It's a hard one to say. The most popular form of this kind of treaty in the ancient world was called a suzerain-vassal treaty. And in that kind of treaty, it was a treaty where unequal participants entered into an agreement. And the only people making promises in this particular case was the lower party. They made oaths to the, to the suzerain, to the vassal, to the power, excuse me, to the king, uh, so that this king would bring that vassal under their protection. And if this lower party broke any of these oaths made to the higher party, then he or she did so on pain of death. So you break the covenant, this king has the authority to squash you. But there's a second kind of covenant in the ancient world, and that's called a royal grant. And in a royal grant, the greater power made oaths to the lesser power. The greater made, made the promises to the lesser power without any obligation to the lesser power. The only reason somebody would do something like that is to show off the riches that he possesses. I, I, can, I can cover you no matter what. And this great power could only keep these promises because of the wealth of his resources. Now, I don't have time to rehash everything I said back there, but it's enough here to know that the new covenant of which, Je of which Jesus speaks here in this text is a royal grant. He asks for no oaths on the part of his disciples as a condition for participating in this meal. If you get your life right, you can come. If you stop doing that, you may attend. If you pray on this many occasions, you, and on and on and on. On the contrary, Christ in this meal is making all the oaths. 
When we drink the cup, we are reminded that we have a king who lived an untarnished devotion life of devotion to God, but at the end of his life, his body was broken and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. And this gift was pulled out of the storehouse of his riches, of his kindness and grace. And when you drink this cup, it is a symbol pointing beyond itself, reminding you of the following, that you belong to me. I am yours. Your sins are forgiven. Though you sin grievously a thousand times, you cannot stray far enough for my love to find you because I promised you that I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And by the way, this is, this is why we have our own symbols as we partake of this meal. I don't know if you ever noticed it, but the, the table is central. This does something to us. If next week you walk in and it's over there, you're going to notice, why is it over there? No, no, it's central to our life as a people of God. The preacher stands behind the table. Why? Because preaching leads us to the sacrament. And have you ever noticed that, that when you come forward, you, you don't come up to this table and take there are people standing here who give it to you. It's a symbol. Because, because what these elements represent is gift, grace. N none of us take from Christ. He only gives to us. And it's a powerful symbol. Um, okay. All of that happened that I just explained. All of that is in the symbol, and, and that happened on the night in question. The night of the Passover, the night before Christ's death. That's the present symbolism of the meal. I don't know if you heard it, there's also a future. There's one more symbol that Christ gave at that meal that we need to consider. In verse 25 of our text, it says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here, Christ gives us one last layer of symbol that draws our longing hearts to the future. Will we literally drink wine with Christ in the resurrection? I don't know. In almost every place that we're told about what that future will be like, it is heavy with symbol. So I take this to be a symbol as well. But a symbol of what? Well, why do people get together and drink wine? One reason they do so is to celebrate. Another reason to do so is to raise a glass in honor of a host or a guest. We're told in the Bible that wine is a gift from God precisely because it cheers the heart. And what Jesus tells us here is that there is coming a day when he returns in power to usher in his everlasting kingdom and to bring his people into it. And in that day, there will be a banquet. 
And we shall see his face. And when we do, glad songs of salvation will overflow from the hearts of his people. We will raise our voice in a great chorus and sing of the king of ages and his magnificent deeds of salvation. And we will bear our arms and we will show the scars of our former affliction on this earth and tell the stories of our sorrows. And then our host will show the scars of his own suffering and sorrow. And far from being an occasion for weeping, we will laugh because all has been made new. And in that moment, we shall raise our glasses to toast the triumph of Christ and our triumph in him, and our hearts will be forever cheered. Now, I haven't been able to talk about this except in the symbols but I trust they work. This is just bread. This is just a cup. But within them and beyond them, there are whole worlds of meaning. All right, let's move to application. I have two. Number one, if all of this is true, we must come to the table. We must, and as often as possible. Coming to this table is the most important thing we do all week. And by saying that, I don't mean to diminish, I don't mean to suggest that God does not um, think highly of our work in our offices or the work of raising children. No, no, no. That's, that's, not, what I'm, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, when we come to this table, overflowing with symbolism as it is, it actually reorganizes our guts. I said before that the metaphor and symbol work at a pre-rational level. When Shakespeare says, Juliet is the sun, we know what he means before we even have to explain it with propositions. And in that way, our, listen, our guts have more to do with orienting our lives than our minds do. Now, I'm not saying the mind is unimportant. I'm saying that our guts work first. So that means we have to do everything in our power to attend to the symbols that orient our guts to the right places. I said earlier that we start by using metaphors, but in the end, our metaphors use us. And I consider that axiomatic. Therefore, We must choose the right symbol. If symbols and metaphor are going to organize our lives anyway, then we need to use our minds, we need to use our wills to choose the right symbols to order our insides in a way that we wish would control us. When we come to this table week after week, when we ingest the bread and ingest the cup, we're told that this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood poured out for you. When that happens, there's something going on inside of each of us below our understanding. I'm not saying we don't understand it also, but there's something going on deeper than that. By this one action and the repetition of it, even in all of its ritualistic potential blandness, By this one action, your heart is being oriented to the kingdom of God. There's this old poem by 
Wallace Stevens called Anecdote of the Jar. And he says in the poem that he places an empty jar on a hill in Tennessee. And he leaves it there. And over time, all the slovenly weeds and vines grow around that jar. And in that way, the wilderness is brought into order. And, and it was slow and almost imperceptible. This table is a jar placed on the hill of your soul every week. Each week you attend it, the slovenly wilderness of your soul grows up around it and it is brought to order. You may not even notice it. It happens imperceptibly, but after a lifetime of ingesting these elements, if you look out upon that hill, what you see is that the wilderness has grown into the shape of the jar inside of which is the kingdom of God. And if you stay away from this table for too long, the world has a way of placing its own objects in the center of that hill. And truth be told, our inner wilderness is very undiscerning. It'll grow around whatever you put it there. I mean, it, it has no, no concern there. So when we come here in defiance of the promises of life held out by the world, we are choosing to orient our lives around the kingdom of God. And though it seems like perhaps we're just eating bread and drinking the cup, our insides are growing in the right direction. And that brings me to the second application. You may be hearing this today, and you are not a Christian. Maybe you've even wanted to be, but you feel like forgiveness couldn't possibly reach down to you. Well, I do have good news for you. Christ set this table today knowing that you would be here. And he has reserved a place for you at his banquet. It may be that you have felt the prick of the pin in his hand this morning, and that prick has awakened you to the reality of the kingdom of God. He shed his blood for you. His body was broken for you. There is no depth of sin that his body and blood cannot conquer with forgiveness. And if only you would believe it, then you are most welcome at this table with us. Because this is not a table for those who are the best of all people. This is a table for those who are the worst of all people. It's not a table for those who never fail. It's a table for those who, upon hearing the magnificent promises on that, on that pre-crucifixion night, walk out hours later and betray him. His grace covers all, and the golden beams of his love have risen to shine upon even you this morning. And I can't help myself but end with the magnificent words of that old Puritan Thomas Watson from his little book called The Lord's Supper. He says this, when I contemplate the holiness and solemnity of the blessed sacrament, I cannot but have some awe upon my spirit and think myself bound to hold this mystery in the highest veneration 
The elements of bread and wine are in themselves common, but under the symbolical representation lie hid divine excellencies. Behold, here the best of dainties. God is in his cheer. In the sacrament, we see Christ broken before us, and the broken body is the only comfort for a broken heart. While we sit at this table, Christ's precious spikenard of merit and grace sends forth its smell. The sacrament is both a healing and sealing ordinance. Here, our Savior leads his people up the Mount of Transfiguration and gives them a glimpse of paradise. How welcome should this jubilee of the soul be, wherein Christ appears in the splendor of his beauty and draws golden lines of his love to the center of a believer's heart. Oh, what flames of devotion should burn in our breasts. How agile and nimble should we be mounting up as on wings of cherubim when we are to meet the Prince of Glory who brings us the olive branch of peace in his mouth and whose kisses leave a print of heaven upon the soul. We come to this table this morning, as we do every week. And here you find God in his cheer. If you ever wanted to know what the happiness of God tastes like, it tastes like bread, it tastes like this cup. And as we ingest these symbols. May it be that our souls feed heartily upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So for all who belong to him, this is your meal. Come and receive it. And come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your name is majestic in all the earth. And we say with David in the Psalms, who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that we should take up space in the mind of God? But we do more than take up space there by the incomparable work of Christ there we become ingredients of your happiness the people of God Father our hearts long for the day when we shall drink the fruit of the vine anew in the kingdom of heaven we pray that as that future comes rushing into the present in our hearts, even at this moment, that you would grant us the hope to endure our trials, our sufferings, our tribulations, the constant iniquity. Will you minister to us the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood poured out as we come to this table now. In Jesus' name, amen. To all God's people, you are most welcome.